Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, explorers. I'm Pam Laricchia, and it's the 4th of May, 2022, as I record this intro. And this week, we're flashing back to episode 37, 10 Questions with Carol Black. I spoke with Carol about her unschooling journey in 2016. We talked about her documentary, Schooling the World, as well as her popular essay, A Thousand Rivers. Carol approaches unschooling and parenting from a cultural lens, through which she's made many valuable connections and insights. She shares some of the major differences between traditional cultural views of children and the modern school-centric view, as well as her thoughts about the future and what we can learn from other cultures. It was such an enlightening conversation, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Whether you're revisiting it or it's your first time listening, I'm sure you'll make some new connections that deepen your understanding of unschooling, and that you'll come away from it feeling inspired. Here's one of the many wonderful insights Carol shares. She said, Unschooling isn't a panacea and it doesn't solve every problem in life. I see it as a transitional stage in gradually developing or rebuilding better ways to live on the earth. It's a step in the right direction. When we first come to unschooling and explore the idea of leaving the world of school behind, it can almost feel like we've discovered utopia. I remember that feeling, and it's a wonderful feeling. It inspires us to take the journey. Yet, over time, as we learn more about how human beings learn and about moving away from parent-child power dynamics and toward connection and trust and compassion in our relationships with our children, the bigger picture begins to reveal itself. Unschooling isn't about school. It's about life. And whether you're looking through the unschooling lens at the intimate picture of your family or the bigger picture of your culture, it doesn't solve all the problems. But as Carol said, it's a step in the right direction. Unschooling encourages us to deepen our self-awareness and to be open to and curious about each moment. It embodies lifelong learning. It inspires us to cultivate strong, connected, and trusting relationships with our children and our partner. And from that seed of our family, our newfound perspective grows to encompass our culture and our world. Again, a step in the right direction. I hope our conversation plants some very interesting seeds for you. <laughs> now, before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. And a big welcome back to Caitlin Walker. Hi, Caitlin. I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support is instrumental in keeping the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Carol. I'm Pam Laricchia from livingjoyfully.ca, and today I'm here with Carol Black. Hi, Carol. Hi. 
Hi, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, many of our listeners may have come across Carol the same way that I first did through her wonderful online essay about unschooling, A Thousand Rivers. She has other insightful essays published on her website, carolblack.org, and she is the director of the fascinating documentary film, Schooling the World. She has two grown daughters, neither of whom has ever taken a standardized test. And I have 10 questions for you, Carol, so let's dive in. Okay, great. First, can you share with us a bit about you and your family and how you came to unschooling? Well, um, for me, the whole process really begins very far back. Um, really, the time I was in first grade, I just remember being very disturbed by the effects on children of the grading and ranking that goes on in school. Um, my friends were often the kids who did not necessarily get the good grades. They were the kids that had a little more life to them. And it just became <laughs> clear to me at an early age that the kids getting the good grades were not even the, you know, sort of most interesting children. They were just sort of obedient, dutiful, boring ones often. Um, and so it just, it really, really pained. I did get good grades and it really pained me being made the instrument of another child feeling bad about themselves. So the competition and the comp the comparison and the ranking really disturbed me. Um, and it became very clear as I watched my friends go through the, the years, um, how deeply damaging this was to them. Um, and how, you know, these bright eyed children would wind up you know, being made to feel stupid. And then by middle school, they would be, you know, the kids that are smoking dope and, and, uh, you know, getting into trouble. But this was something that was being created. It didn't have to be that way. Um, <coughs> and it was only much later that it, it sort of became clear to me how closely it all correlated with family income, how even in a basically middle-class um, public school, the kids in the, you know, the honors classes were all the kids from the more affluent neighborhoods and the kids from the slightly lower income neighborhoods were all in, um, the lower tract classes. So, um, when I was in college, I, um, I went into a teacher education program and I was actually going to get certified to teach. And I think I had some big idea of, you know, being part of the sort of seventies education reform movement that had been going on for some time. Um, but the, the book that really changed my life was reading how children fail by John Holt, because all of his observations just matched my experience of sort of what was being done to kids in schools. Um, how really bright children were becoming unable to think well, um, in the school context with the sort of fear and the power relationship, um, that was established there. And, it was just kind of like a light bulb going off for me. And I just realized I was not going to be able to take part in this and do this to children. So I dropped out of the teacher ed program and, you know, did other things. Um, but then, um, we had, we actually, we actually lost our first child when she was about three weeks old. And, um, during that time, uh, somebody from the hospital, gave me this newsprint catalog of books because we had no internet then. And um, so I had this newsprint catalog of books that was given to me for to find infant loss and bereavement, books about bereavement. Um, and But my eye just fell on this book called Teach Your Own by John Holt. 
Um, and it just, you know, it sort of registered in my brain and, you know, we were preoccupied at that time with other things. So I didn't follow up on it until a couple of years later when we finally had a healthy daughter. And, um, and it was just sort of a funny story because my husband and I were, um, we had spent some time in Colorado when we were younger and we loved it there. And so we took our three month old daughter to Colorado and we were hiking and, you know, the Aspens are in their full glory, um, in September. And so we were just thinking, Oh, great. Now we, you know, we're going to have our happy family at long last. And, you know, we'll take our kids to Colorado in September to see the beautiful Aspens turn. And then we were just, just sort of like hit us both like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't go to Colorado in September because September. your kids will be in school. <laughs> and, you know, we, we just sort of had this kind of full body realization, both of us instantly, like, that's wrong. <laughs> and, um, and so I remembered seeing that book. So when I got home, I ordered to teach your own and the rest was history. We were just, my husband and I were just instantly from the second we heard that you didn't actually have to send your kids to school and didn't have to make them do all the things they do in school. We were just there and we, we never had any lengthy discussion and, and never looked back. Well, that's awesome. I, I, I had the, it's too bad that I didn't first find, you know, find out about um, the fact that they didn't actually have to go to school until, you know, they were in school for a while. But all those um, epiphanies and, and, you know, that thought process that you went to that you describe, I really remember going through at that time. Because as soon as you realize it's an option, the questions that come up are, are just incredible. And and the September thing, yeah, exactly. What It, it, it really controls... Um, our, our lives get uh, scheduled around it, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could share uh, what your children are up to right now. Uh, if Looking back, you can see some, a thread of their interests and activities that have brought them to where they are today. Yeah, well, I mean, there really is a kind of uh, continuity. Um, although I have, with all the different kids, because I've now had the opportunity to see their whole group of kids grow up. And you do see how some of the kids, they really are who they are from a very young age and others really transform. It's almost like they metamorphose through different, you know, stages and really surprise you. And so it's, it's really been such a pleasure to watch, you know, all these kids grown up, uh, grow up. But, um, uh, my daughters are 22 and 26 and, uh, Isabel's 26. She, unschooled all the way until college. And she graduated in 2012 with a double concentration in literature and ecology and evolution. Um, and she's now doing research and writing for a nonprofit organization. And she's working on her own independent writing projects. Um, <coughs> in addition, and Marina, um, just graduated from college, uh, this year, she, she actually decided to go to high school for her last two years and then, um, graduated this year with a double major in, um, English and German literature and a minor in film studies. And she's leaving in a few days for a teaching fellowship in Austria where she's going to teach English. Um, ah. so, uh, she, yeah, she has long had a love. She just wanted to learn German from a, from a young age. And, um, and uh, has worked worked very hard to to learn it as an unschooler. Um, and uh, German is my mother in law's uh, 
first language. And, and Marina was just fascinated by it. And so now she's, <laughs> she's off to, uh, to Austria, which is where my mother-in-law was born. Um, she had to leave in 39 when Hitler came in. And, uh, so, uh, Yep. So, so that has been the fulfillment of a longtime interest. And Isabel also just was all, always interested in literature and art and drawing and, and really interested in um, plants. She, uh, when Isabel was eight years old, she got really interested in orchids for some reason. She just became fascinated by orchids. And so she uh, started collecting them and developed this really large collection of unusual species orchids. Um, that she that she raised and uh, she belonged to the local orchid society. There are orchid societies everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they have competitions, and she would would have her plants in the in the orchid competitions. And actually, one of her plants was in the film uh, adaptation because they shot uh, <laughs> they shot a scene from the film at, at the Santa Barbara International Orchid Show. Where <laughs> <laughs> orchids were were being displayed. So. Um, so that, you know, funneled into her interest in um, ecology and evolution um, in college. And uh, she went to this really wonderful college called Bennington in Vermont, which um, was established as a, as a very alternative college in the 1920s. Um, and they have uh, something called the plan process, which is great for kids who have unschooled and who know how to sort of um, manage their own um, interests and, and study with the, with the plan process, the students, um, sort of craft their own area of concentration. They have a plan committee of three mentor advisors who they meet with periodically and they, they draft a plan essay and then they revise their essay every year as their, um, area of focus becomes more clear. So it's a great kind of collaborative mentorship way of, um, of, of developing your, your area of study. And, and it works really well for, for unschooled kids and grades are also optional at Bennington and Isabel never wanted to take grades. Um, but she, uh, for a while, one of her advisors advised her to take grades in case she wanted to go to graduate school, but she like started it out for a few weeks and she was just like, I can't do this. This completely changes the way I think about the work that I'm doing. And so we were like, just fine, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and Marina went to a more, uh, conventional liberal arts college and she really enjoyed it. She's always sort of enjoyed more structure and more social activity than her sister. She kind of likes to be where the action is, you know? And, um, so that's, you see a lot of different definitions of unschooling online and I don't agree with all of them. And I think it's so important that we don't, um, fall into this thing of, of sort of just as unschoolers valorizing a different kind of child than the kind of child that's valorized by the schools. Because I think that how much structure and how much social engagement and um, even, you know, deadlines and all those kind of things, you know, how much all of that people want is, is just sort of a natural personality spectrum. And, you know, we just have to support our kids in um, finding out what works for them. Um, so, uh, it's like John, I kind of subscribe to what John Holt said, which is that, you know, kids have the right to control and direct their own learning, which includes the right to decide, and this is his quote, if, when, how much, and by whom they want to be taught, and the right to decide whether they want to learn in a school, and if so, which one, and for how much of the time. And um, and so 
I think it's really natural for an unschooled kid to become curious about school. And it's a big part of our society. And we shouldn't expect them to just take our word for it. Um, what it's like, they may want to see it for themselves and see what the experience is like and kind of make their own mind up about it. So, so Marina did decide to go to school for her last two years and we were very supportive of that. Um, and, but it was kind of funny because her teachers would say, you know, why are you so different from our other students? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, she said, because I don't have to be here. Um, so she was real clear about that. So it, it's all been an interesting you know, experience in that way. Yeah, I think that is such a great point. And uh, we, a few episodes uh, episodes ago, we we talked about that because there, the whole point really is um, is supporting your your child and helping them learn, you know, the way they want to learn and and being able to support them if they choose uh, school as a way. Or you know, even I know my daughter when she was. Um, still at home and learning, but when she was really interested in photography, she really wanted to set up uh, like a schedule for herself, for uh, her own routine for her days, you know, so she started a 365 project for it. You know, she she felt um, she wanted to start at noon and she would work until she had her picture for the day. And maybe sometimes that wasn't until midnight when she was finally happy with it. But she learned so much about herself through that structure. And and the hugest point is that it's always their choice, right? It's just such a different experience when they get to choose and and experience uh, whatever it is that they're looking for, right? Yeah. And I mean, if I can just add one more thing, I really think one of the most important things for an adult to know as they go through life is what amount and kind of structure and social engagement works best for them to sort of bring out of themselves what they want to be, because some people really are happier, um, you know, more with a more independent kind of inner directed life. And some people are really happier in a a social structure that has a set of parameters like that and almost a set, you know, a structure of accountability. And um, if other people are counting on you. That may be the thing that helps you motivate yourself. So people are just are really different in that way. And knowing, you know, who you are and um, what the best way for you to live and, and sort of feel happy and fulfilled, I think is such an important thing to, to know about yourself. And so to give kids the opportunity to experiment with that and figure out what works best for them. Um, and you don't want to, at one point, my daughter had kind of imbibed this idea that um, when people start, uh, you know, having these kind of competitive descriptions of their brilliant genius unschooled children who are, you know, sending satellites to the moon and stuff like that. It just sort of like, she's like, ah, yeah, I'm not like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you don't want to wind up holding up these examples of these very high achieving self-directed students and, and make other kids feel bad about themselves for not, you know, not being that like that and able to sort of, you know, function, um, function in quite that way. So yeah, that's really the key is to help kids find what works for them and to feel good about it. Yeah, that's always kind of the uh, the challenge, isn't it? On, on one hand, when people come and they learn about unschooling, they want to know, you know, will will my child be able to go to college? Will they able to be, you know, successful? 
Um, so, you know, you can give them all these examples of, of children who look conventionally, unschooled kids who look conventionally successful, right? right. But the whole point, though, it, for those people who know those kids, it's such a different experience because they weren't setting out to be successful. You know, um, conventionally, kids are, you know, you need your good college, your good job, you know, and then then you're an okay person. Whereas um, for, in my experience anyway, for most unschooling kids, when they look conventionally successful, they're only there because it's just, it's something that they've chosen to do. It's something that they want to do. It's like a byproduct rather than the goal. It was never the goal itself, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, the goal yeah. of life is not to be better than other people. And it's yeah, really important exactly. to remember that and, and, you know, make sure that our kids um, understand that as best as possible because the society is so competitive. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do think it's a little bit like um, – in the same sense that we try to raise our daughters to be confident and not to imbibe this cultural value of thinness um, as equivalent to beauty. And you want them to feel good in their own bodies and, you know, um, be confident in being who they are at a healthy weight. But still, they are affected by these, you know, other cultural standards that are out there. And it's impossible to completely protect them from that. And I think the the cultural standard of comparison and competition is very similar. You can sort of shield your kids from it, really, if you ha- especially if you have a good homeschooling, unschooling group where not being competitive and, and uh, not comparing kids is sort of the ethos of your group. Then you can really give them this wonderful childhood where they just don't worry about that stuff. And... Um, but then at a certain point, as they get into their teen years, they live in this world and, and they see how everyone is being compared and ranked. And, you know, they have to learn to navigate that. And it can be stressful, you know, for them. I think it's very parallel to how girls have to navigate the, the weight issues. So, um, it, it, you know, we just have to try to support them. But you also have to acknowledge that you don't have total control over it. Yes, I think that's a really apt comparison because I... I found um, in the teen years and even now there was so much conversation that I, that I have with my kids because um, there are just so many cultural and societal messages that, of course, they absorb because they are engaged with the world. Right. And it came up all the time, even, you know, hanging out with uh, friends and going to activities. And it was really a lot of processing for them to understand, to see how our lives uh, were different, how their lives, how they, how the relationship with their parents was, was another huge one. You know, the difference in um, maybe autonomy, uh, the control that they had over their lives was, was a huge thing. And to, um, to be able to understand, you know, why it's other ways, what the other messages are, and and how both these ways to be in the world are are there, and how to navigate it, understand it, and uh, still be able to move through life the way they were most comfortable, you know, um, with that control and and respect for the people in their lives. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Um, oh, yes. I love the uh, bigger picture lens through which you see and talk about unschooling um, 
through our conversation already, through your essays on your website, and through your film, Schooling the World. I was wondering what brought you to explore how children learn across different cultures and incorporate that into your view of unschooling. Well, in a lot of ways, that also really dates back to um, our experience uh, with our first child who we lost. Um, the experience with her in the hospital led to a lot of really deep questioning about our culture and our ways, our sort of institutional ways of dealing with children. Um, when um, our daughter Anna was in the hospital, she was she was hooked up to all these electric monitors, and you know um, they were tracking her vital functions, and everything was just like her vital functions were very unstable. They were just all over the place and up and down. But I began to realize that every time I held her, her vital functions, her breathing and her heart rate would stabilize. Um, and then when she had to go back into the, you know, they called it an isolate, interestingly enough, the little plastic box, um, then her breathing and heart rate would become irregular again. And then I would hold her and it would stabilize. So this was this very consistent effect that I began to notice and, um, you know, at that time, we weren't into really any kind of alternative parenting or anything. Um, but I started to think about this later on, and then I started to sort of research it and um, found out there was quite a body of research about this effect on newborns in the hospital. And then further research just shows that, you know, we are our species, you know, we're primates and we're part of a whole family of mammals that are evolved to carry and hold our infants. And being held has this physiological effect on your body temperature and your blood pressure and your heart rate. And essentially, as social mammals, we're not fully biologically separate from each other. We're, we're really relying on each other to regulate our physical processes at, at sort of the most basic level you know, just all the studies you always see about how people's immune systems don't function well if they're too isolated. So, you know, so then I just started, you know, realized the sort of obvious thing that if you look at pre-industrialized cultures all over the world, you see that infants and young children are almost constantly held. And so I began to be curious about birth and child-rearing traditions in those cultures. And, um, the interesting thing at that time was there was very little that was available. There was the older, there were the older things like Margaret Mead and then the more sort of counterculture things like the continuum concept. But, um, you could read, I was trying, I was reading widely in anthropology and you could read a whole ethnography of a culture and it would tell you like all about warfare and kinship structures and initiation rites and almost nothing about child rearing practices. It was just like, I guess that was just like, you know, housework or women's stuff to these male, <laughs> mostly male anthropologists, and they just were not that interested in it. Um, but, you know, I began to pick up bits and pieces here and there and just slowly started to realize that a lot of how learning was structured in these cultures was very consistent with what John Holt and others were saying about learning. And so, you know, in the last five to 10 years, there's really finally started to be this real explosion of serious scholarship on learning in other cultures. And what's coming out is that they basically unschool and there's almost no formal teaching and children, you know, learn by observation and experimentation. So, you know, and you often can't tell exactly how they learn the things they know, all the things that we see as unschooling parents. And, you know, it's important not to romanticize or sort of essentialize 
other cultures, there's a huge amount of variety and, you know, they're not perfect in every respect. Every culture has its own problems and pathologies. But um, one anthropologist has said, but you, you really also can't overlook that there is a remarkable degree of overlap in the broad findings about how um, pre-industrialized societies approach children and learning. And so, um, you know, I think this does uh, resonate with our experience as unschoolers and the idea that uh, institutional school is, you know, in no way the norm, should no way, in no way be considered the norm for human learning. It's, it's a very recent experiment. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I find, hmm. okay, never mind. I'm going to restart. <laughs> um, yeah, that's very interesting information. Uh, it's not something that I had originally come across, so I've been really fascinated as I've been reading your stuff and, and watching your film, um, how just how much... Um, information about uh, how how humans really learn you know not just children too how how people learn within their own culture and society and it leads nicely into uh the next question i wanted to talk a bit about your uh, essay a thousand rivers what the modern world has forgotten about children and lear learning um and i've seen that being shared in unschooling circles for years and in it you make the point that people today don't really know what children are actually like. They only know at this point what children are like in schools. And your classic quote, which I know I've shared, is uh, collecting data on human learning based on children's behavior in school is like collecting data on killer whales based on their behavior at SeaWorld. It's such a great quote because it really hits home how different children are. Um, in school and out of school. And it's not something uh, you see until you uh, bring them home and uh, and inside an unschooling environment where they um, begin to take control. Because controlling a child's learning from the outside, content, pace, style, has such a profound effect on how they see themselves both as learners and as people, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it... it kind of paradoxical, but it, it can distort things so completely that you just literally have no way of knowing what people would have been like if you hadn't done that to them. So, I mean, you know, so people will always say, if you unschool, I'm sure you've heard this, someone will say to you, well, unschooling never would have worked for me. I would never have done anything, you know, difficult if somebody didn't make me. And, you know, the response to that is, well, maybe that might be true, but you don't actually know that for a fact because you really don't know what you would have been like if you hadn't spent most of your, you know, tender developmental years being forced to do really boring things against your will. So if you really would have had choice to follow your own interests, maybe you would have taken on challenges and you would have worked hard. Um, I do also think to a great extent, people kind of are who they are and that the form of education doesn't fundamentally alter that. But, um, I, but the, this thing where someone can be driven into sort of a, a very resistant state where they are resistant to doing anything difficult because they do identify it with a kind of imposed authority that they are resistant to um, and, uh, and where they develop that deep, deep feel, feeling of failure and those deep 
uh, sort of defensive moves to protect against failure, one of which, you know, the classic, probably the most common of which is to just never try very hard at anything because that way the failure doesn't hurt as much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it really can be just such a distorting thing. Yeah, I find that failure piece is uh, is a big piece too, and and uh, the other thing that I see so often is, I mean, when you have so many parents who come up, you know, who say, you know, my my kid would never learn if they weren't told they had to learn, you know, and and the children so often um, after a few years of school really believe that too, yeah. you know. So many times, uh, my daughter's friends would come up and say, "You must be so bored." because you don't go to school, right? Because they could just only imagine doing things because they were told they had to do them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, another great observation that you... There are also the kids that say, oh my God, I wish I could do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I've had so many kids come and say, Carol, will you unschool me? <laughs> Did you find, like I found that was, you know, that happened kind of when they were younger and then... Um, Later on in their teens, there was kind of these middle years where, where they 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 didn't really want to do that because they, you know, they they felt um, I don't know they they felt real they felt good about school they that was the only option that they could see. Did you find that, or well, you know, I think just throughout the years, <laughs> I think I think you actually have both types of kids. The type of kid who adapts pretty happily to school in their yeah. younger years, but then they become truly miserable in their teens. And then you have the opposite, the kids that, you know, um, are, you know, happily unschooling as in elementary, you know, or happily homeschooling in elementary years and then want to go into school in their teens. I mean, in some cases, the social environment of, of the teen years is obviously a draw and also a punishment. So it sort of depends on how you're interacting <laughs> with that, I guess. But, um, but, you know, I, I've, I've had some, some kids who were pretty socially happy at school who still desperately, you know, wished they didn't have to go through the academics. Oh yeah, I know. We had we would have a lot of kids coming to uh, visit and hang out at our house for a long time, <laughs> whenever they could. Yeah, sure, come on over. <laughs> um, uh, another great observation that you share in the article about unschooling children is that they want their learning to be their own. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the ways that we might unintentionally interfere with that. Yeah, well, you know, my feeling about it is it can be really subtle and um, kids really read your mind, at least a lot of them do. And if you have an agenda, they will smell it on you. Yes. <laughs> so you have these people that think they can sort of like encourage and cajole and, you know, what they think of even as facilitating, you know, is... Um, the kids are still experiencing it as kind of invasive, as kind of a crossing of their boundaries. And I mean, I do think that some children probably are more naturally, they more naturally are willing to sort of please the adults and kind of fulfill their fantasies and give them what yeah. they want. And other children are more naturally independent. But, you know, my kids were, na were very naturally independent. And, um, and you know, they, they could, uh, they could, 
I could smell, you know, my agenda <laughs> from a mile off. So you really have to learn to kind of, you know, back away. Um, so, you, so like a typical thing is that thing where a kid says, well, you know, maybe I'd like to play the piano. And then, you know, like the next day, the moving guys are bringing the piano into the living room. <laughs> You're going to facilitate their their desire to learn piano. And then they say, you know, I think I'd rather take karate, <laughs> you know, um, because, and this is an interesting thing that you do here in a lot of indigenous cultures, but you also see it in a lot of Hollywood movies about mean violin teachers and spelling teachers and things like that, where, you know, the child has to come to the teacher and the teacher initially rebuffs them and the child expresses a desire to learn and the teacher will rebuff them through two or three times until the child really, really, you know, um, demonstrates a, you know, a serious interest. And then they will finally sort of reluctantly agree to teach them. And, you know, as unschooling parents, most of us aren't going to go that far. We, we generally want our kids to feel that, you know, we are in a state of readiness to help them out with, with what they're interested in. And, you know, we do the strewing thing that, that what Sandra Dodd calls strewing, where you sort of fill your house with things that you think might be of interest and kind of seek out, you know, opportunities that you think they might enjoy. But then it's just like, if you don't leave that little bit of space for them to make it their own, you really can generate, it's incredible how much resistance you can still generate. <laughs> And, you know, it's really funny. And they just will, they'll see you getting excited about something that, that they're doing and, and they will back away. I think it's a real sense that maybe the parent is a little too ego invested in it or something. They just feel it as an invasion and they back away. And, and I, I feel like I have seen unschooling families where, you know, the families where people are really struggling with a late reader and they really want the kid to read and they, they, they want to be able to wait, but the waiting is taking too long and they're getting anxious and maybe the parents are starting to bicker between themselves about it and blah, blah, blah. And I, I feel like that you, you see, I do wonder sometimes if people are kind of getting stuck in this in-between zone where, you know, they're not forcing the kid to do the thing, but they're kind of hovering over it in a way that causes a sort of still causes this kind of aversive reaction. It just sort of unnerves them that you care so much and it kind of taints their own interest in the activity because they can just feel you hovering over it. And, you know, so I wind up telling people, look, either just make them do it or you got to just let it go because you don't want to get sort of stuck in the middle with that. It's kind of like a Zen thing of like letting go of attachment to the outcome that, you know, for sometimes for unschooling to work, you really have to be able to, to let go even when it's challenging. Yeah. I mean, I, I picked this, I, you know, wrote this question because I just, I found that to be such a fascinating piece of unschooling, you know, because just a little bit of expectation, they, they pick up on it totally. And then I, yeah, I find that it, them doing it or, or they they feel they can sense that them doing it would be more about satisfying you than about satisfying their own interests right yeah <laughs> yeah and then then they'll they'll back off on it because you know it's not theirs to own and that point about your reading example is is really great because if you get stuck in that middle there's there's no communication there right you're not telling them what to do 
but you've got those, they can feel those unspoken expectations. So they kind of avoid it and you kind of avoid it because you don't want to push per se, but then, then, then you're kind of at an impasse, right? And, and you're actually getting in the way just as badly. Yeah, I think it's true. I think it's, it's really an interesting, it's an interesting thing to navigate. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. think, oh, I'm going to unschool my kids or whatever. I'll, I'm basically going to unschool, but there's a couple of things. I'm, and, yeah. and there, look, people do all kinds of different things that work for them, but it, it really is possible to get stuck in a place that's neither here nor there. And you kind of have to go one way or the other way. Um, so, uh, for, for it to be sort of psychologically healthy, basically. So it, it is interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you published a new essay on your website earlier this year, uh, on the wildness of children, the revolution will not take place in a classroom. And in it, you note that compulsory schooling, as you mentioned earlier, is basically a social experiment that originally conceived in the late 1800s to adapt children to the new industrial age. Uh, Yet in only about seven generations, school has become an integral part of modern childhood, and this background has been forgotten. With unschooling, uh, we choose to leave this experiment behind and look at how children are naturally wired to learn. And we soon come to see that learning isn't really a special activity in and of itself at all. It's a natural byproduct of being alive and living in the world and spending much of their days in what you shared, uh, researcher Suzanne Gaskin, what she calls a state of open attention. Uh, Can you describe what that looks like? Well, you know, a couple of the moms in our group and I, we, we just started talking about the fact that um, that our kids really seemed to be in a kind of different mental state than school kids. And, you know, everywhere we took them, where there were adults, like at a museum or a, an aquarium, or, you know, we would take them on animal tracking hikes, things like that. Everywhere we take them, people would just be like, their jaws would kind of drop. They would just be like, you know, we've never, we've never had a group of kids like this before. Um, they just, it was like, it was something they hadn't seen before. And, and because basically the kids were very engaged, they were relaxed, they were alert, they were respectful, they were interested in things, they, they listened, they just, they picked everything up, they asked good questions, they, mm-hmm. you know, they, and, and, you know, and ultimately they, they remembered everything. They didn't forget the things that they learned. Um, and so, so we just began to, to notice this in our kids. And, you know, we didn't have a term for it at the time, but when I read Suzanne Gaskin's description of open attention, I was like, well, okay, that's what it is. It's the brain in an open alert state, taking in information from the environment, um, in, in this kind of open way. And, you know, one of the things that she says is that open attention is broadly focused. So the important feature of it is that if something happens over here, you know, to the right of you or to the left of you, you're going to notice it and turn your head and watch that because, oh, something interesting just happened over that, over there. But of course, kids in school are punished for doing that. They're expected to just focus, you know, their attention on the teacher or their work and develop this kind of like tunnel vision. So then I think when you have that kind of tunnel vision quality and you move out into the world, you're not naturally as observant. You, you don't pick up things. You have this kind of shut down quality that, um, where, 
you've learned to sort of exclude the environment from your awareness to some extent, but then you're told to focus on something that doesn't interest you very much and you're in a state of resistance to that. And it really shuts down a lot of the mental capacity of, of kids. And so then people just start to think that's how kids are. And, you know, they have these demeaning stereotypes of, about kids and their cell phones, you know, and how kids aren't interested in anything unless you force them to be. Um, I, I think with their cell phone, with their cell phones, kids actually are, um, you know, they're focusing in a way that is not resistant because they actually are communicating with each other. They're being creative, you know, whether it's schooled kids or unschooled kids in that realm, they're the same because they're using it to communicate with each other, to, to, to be creative on Instagram or, you know, Snapchat and, you know, whatever they're playing games, they're interacting in all kinds of ways. And, um, I find that this generation of kids who who interacts through uh, technology and text, they are very they have really deep interpersonal relationships. They talk about everything, you know, more than we did, you know, when I was that age. Um, so um, so they really learn a lot. But but the unschooled kids sort of have that that openness and that attitude toward the entire world, and they're not in that shutdown sort of resistant frame of mind. And so then, you know, their minds are basically just, you know, as many people have remarked, you know, they're not in this resistant avoidance state. So they're naturally just absorbing everything about the world and they're kind of mapping the world and revising their maps and all of it just goes on, um, you know, like 90% of what just goes on without um, anybody even being consciously aware of it. And they just develop a pretty clear, you know, understanding of, of things. It is interesting how every child does map the world differently and they do have different um, areas of awareness and, and things that they're not aware of, which, of course, is true in a school where there's a required curriculum as well. Every kid learns something different and has things that they don't learn. So um, how you want to choose to address the gaps in your knowledge is an open question for everybody. I mean, having a mandated curriculum doesn't completely solve that problem, but um but I think the larger question for us is how can we begin to rebuild our communities in a way that gives kids more freedom and more access to the adult community? And that's a question that John Holt started asking all these years ago and that I feel like, you know, some moves have been made in that direction with, you know, mentorships and apprenticeships in the communities. But I feel like we have to, you know, reimagine the world of adult work in a way that um, can allow access to um, to teenagers into workplaces and adult community spaces so that they can continue that process of, of observant participatory learning um, in a broader, you know, range of environments. Yeah, I think that that gives them the opportunity, right, for that open attention. When, when I first read about read that phrase in your article, I went to some of the links and search that and the description of of that state of that learning state really really encompassed a lot of what we see in in unschooling kids right and how how different they just approach their days and um I used to always marvel like when I would take the kids to the science center or, you know, to the aquarium or whatever how differently they would each go through it um and 
But then you'd see the school groups going through too, and you would see that. You would really see that tunnel vision as as they worked uh, their worksheets, you know, where they had to go, how many minutes they had at each at each space. So it was it was always so interesting to see how they put that map together. I love I love that picture. Uh, that you talked about how uh, they build their own maps and they are very different for each person. And yeah, I don't even know, you know, I, when you talk, when we talk about gaps in um, what they learn, I don't think any, you know, you've got this compulsory curriculum or whatever, but so often everybody's map is individual because that's the map that works best for them in their life, you know, and, and when there's a gap in it that they decide they want to use, they, they know they can learn um, and figure that thing out at any time, at any age. That's the nice thing about taking away the, the compulsory uh, school years, uh, from the picture, right, is that it's it's a world and it's learning and I'm going to do those pieces uh, when I encounter them. So the idea of opening up um, the adult kind of world to teens um, to start engaging in the things that they find interesting in the gaps that they are interested in filling, that would be uh, that would be a really great next step, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I'd like to shift and talk about your documentary, Schooling the World. Um, I really enjoyed uh, watching it. It was, it was really fascinating. And something that you wrote in the introduction I wanted to share with the listeners. Uh, the film Schooling the World asks us to reexamine some of our deepest assumptions about knowledge, learning, ignorance, poverty, success, and wealth. The purpose of the film is not to provide all the answers, but to ask a question, to open a conversation, Our hope is that you will be able to use the film with your friends, colleagues, students, or organization to begin conversations that will be deep, challenging, and inspiring. I really love that that your goal was to spark conversations, so I'm hoping we'll do that uh, with the podcast too. So first, let's talk about the culture of schooling. What are some of the differences between the culture of schooling, which basically defines modern childhood nowadays, and the culture of childhood in a traditional society? Well, you know, uh, people have come up with different lists. Manish Jain at uh, Shikshantar has uh, has his uh, list of differences in the culture of schooling. Um, the list that I sort of come up with is... Um, First of all, the physical separation of children from nature and from the community. So it's just this radical departure. Children have always grown up just immersed in the natural world and immersed in the adult community. And and the idea of physically separating them from those things and then segregating age segregation. This is the next thing. Segregating them by age is so completely unnatural. Um, And it really cuts off what I think is one of the most natural, fluid forms of learning, which is the tendency of children to learn from slightly older children. You know, children are always fascinated by kids that are two, three, four years older than they are. They want to emulate them. They just are going to naturally absorb whatever they can from those kids. And that is such a powerful engine of learning that is just cut off by um, segregating kids by age and then putting them in a room with like one lady, which um, <laughs> they don't care much about. So, um, 
the next big thing that's kind of invisible to us, um, and I do have another piece called Occupy Your Brain, which is largely about these structures of authority and coercion um, that that are embedded in our ideas about learning. And um, and in these traditional societies, um, kids have pretty, they have a lot of autonomy. There are, there are agricultural societies where kids are sort of required and expected to do more productive work for the family. Um, in the hunter-gatherer societies, there's more sort of complete freedom. But, but the idea that people are going to just control your moment-by-moment actions and, and behavior is just not there in a lot of societies. And they have a, a high degree of respect for the autonomy of the individual and the right of the individual sort of not to be interfered with. Um, Leanne Simpson, uh, who's a Anishinaabeg scholar, has a beautiful way of, of just saying that, that the Anishinaabeg view of, of learning is based in consent and um, the right of the individual to be free of violence and the use of force. And so um, the fact that we have wrapped learning up into these structures of dominance and non-consent and coercion and punishment um, is, is a cultural thing that really dates back really to an idea of children as, as sinful beings whose wills need to be broken because they're naturally sinful. Um, that it's kind of a holdover from that cultural strain, which is not universal in the world. Not everybody looks at life that way. Um, another big difference is uh, the idea of individualism and competition and ranking. Um, in a lot of indigenous societies, direct competition, any kind of boasting or bragging are really frowned upon. It's really considered extremely bad manners to set one person above another in any way. And, um, and people who've studied this have discovered that in, you know, in schools, uh, indigenous children, if you, if you sort of say, oh, you're the star student, they will often then uh, intentionally lower their performance because they don't want to be held up that way over others. And, you know, the funny thing was, as a kid who got good grades, that's exactly how I felt. I just, I hated it. I hated that feeling. Um from early childhood and that you're being used to make other people feel bad is, and you know, you would never voluntarily do that yourself, but that kind of boasting, bragging, setting one person above another, um, is, is just institutionalized in, in the system. And it's really strange when you think about it, because everybody knows, for example, that you shouldn't compare two siblings and say, well, why can't you be as smart as your sister? Everybody knows you shouldn't do that, but the schools do that. So, yeah. um, and it causes really predictable, you know, family. <laughs> it really does. Just relationships between siblings in, in ways that are lifelong. Um, the other idea is this whole idea of standardization, that, that we're going to tie learning goals to standardized chronological age and then call it failure or disability if people don't meet those standardized age-based goals. Um, so it's kind of the invention of failure, the construction of failure, like failure doesn't need to exist just because one person learns something at a different point in time than another person. Um, you know, they're going to learn it when they're ready. Um, so indigenous societies are, are much more flexible in that sense that they don't have strict ideas of, of the timing of learning. 
And then just the idea of learning as a kind of abstracted text-based thing, as opposed to something that's contextualized in everyday um, activities. And just the idea that the best way to learn is through explicit instruction with explicit e evaluation. And um, there's just a very recent article that's come out where this guy does a cross-cultural survey and finds that across many, many, many cultures, it's a, it's a something that adults understand that children will learn better if you don't teach them explicitly. Um, as an unschooler, I have usually been sort of value neutral on that. If, if somebody wants to learn something explicitly, that's great. If they want to, don't want to do that, that's great. However they want to do it is great. But it's interesting to know that um, in a lot of these cultures, it's kind of taken as a given that people will learn better and more deeply and more solidly if they learn through sort of experience and experiment and, and uh, by kind of figuring things out on their own instead of being instructed explicitly. So I could go on. There's more. There's the idea of knowledge as objective and secular and kind of analytic as opposed to a lot of cultures that have a very holistic view of knowledge where spiritual beliefs permeate your botanical knowledge, you know, your botanical knowledge is connected to your spiritual beliefs and um, your basic survival skills and how you live in the world are all connected to in a very holistic way with um, community values and spiritual beliefs. And there isn't this separation of objective knowledge and, um, and spirituality, including a sense that we live in a sort of reciprocal ethical relationship with other species and the earth that, you know, again, the idea of objective knowledge is that, you know, I'm the subject, you're the object. And so we render other species and plants and animals and the earth itself into an object for our scrutiny and indigenous societies don't see things that way. They see, um, again, I, I don't want to make, excessively universal claims here, but, you know, many indigenous societies, you will see it coming, you know, being framed this way in different places around the world. The idea that you, you have a reciprocal ethical relationship with the earth and with other species and that that's how you have to view them and understand them, which is just a very different way of, of understanding your place in the world. Yeah, that it is really different. And that is, the really great list. I really love that uh, from the from the documentary. There were so many different pieces that came out. One thing that really jumped out at me when I was watching was um, the discussion around failure. You know, because you know, at first you're thinking about well, learning or you learn it or you don't learn it, and and um, what kind of uh, environment um, is most supportive of learning, but. The idea that what what you're really saying by not learning something is is that a lot of kids will take that on as a failure and as a judgment of themselves. And it had me thinking and I didn't, you know, I came to realize how much I had internalized that myself. You were talking about the explicit instruction and evaluation um, versus just picking it up. And, and it really got me thinking um, how much better I did learn and understand things and remember things when I was picking them up myself. But I, you know, through school, I became so scared to do that because I thought, you know, somebody has to teach me this and teach me the right way, you know, or, 
because everything else seemed like like a failure. So that that was a really fascinating piece of it. It is interesting that even things though like the Khan Academy now, which you know I have mixed feelings about because they're using a very you know conventional explicit instruction model of teaching, and yet obviously at a certain point it's difficult to find the circumstance where you're going to just pick up advanced. <laughs> so, you know, you got to come at it somehow. And, and so the good piece of what the Khan Academy is trying to establish is this idea that, you know, you haven't failed, you just haven't learned it yet. And, and because it really is a crazy thing when you think about it, this idea that if you don't take high school chemistry, if you don't learn chemistry when you are 17 years old, you will somehow be left behind. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like chemistry is not going anywhere. Chemistry is still going to be there if you learn it when you're 19 or when you're 23. So depending on what you want to do with your life, um, you know, there are so many even rather technical fields that if we could just, if we could just reorder, you know, some of the ability to pick up knowledge as you need it in, in, you know, different sequences and, um, without this idea that there's this one track that you have to go through. And if you don't get that chemistry piece when you're 17, it's just irrevocable. It's gone from you now. So um, there are a lot of ways we can be more flexible even about these these sort of explicit instruction areas. Yeah, that and that I think or I find um, with a lot of, uh, you know, newer people who come to unschooling, that is such a huge piece to get rid of because we've already absorbed, you know, this whole this whole school system into our lives so much that, you know, if you don't know this particular set by the time you're 18 and, you know, are stamped to graduate, to be able to, you know, live competently in the world, we really feel like, even as parents, we feel like, um, you know, they're feeling like they'll have failed if they haven't hit all these buttons. So so that's a, a really huge thing, I think, for people to work through that that timeline thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In conversations about traditional cultures, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, it's regularly suggested that uh, those who appreciate their ways are romanticizing them, downplaying problems that are within within the culture, like infant mortality or infectious diseases. Um, What the film brings out so clearly is that maybe we are romanticizing our own culture and our version of education when we export it overseas. We've seen through experience that um, the school structure also brings with it a lot of consequences like uh, lasting damage to our children's creativity um, and as we were talking about branding so many children as failures. We also often fail, fail to consider the depth and the breadth and the complexity of those knowledge systems that we're displacing. You know, you were talking about how closely tied some of them are with the spiritual knowledge and the objective knowledge. And I love the point that Wade Davis made at the end of the film. He said, uh, these peoples, these cultures are not failed attempts at being us. They are unique answers to the fundamental question What does it mean to be human and alive? Their answers have allowed them to live sustainably on the planet for generations. So how might we move beyond romanticizing either side of this cultural confrontation and have deeper conversations about how we connect and engage with other cultures around the world? Yeah, you know, it it is kind of... It's a small question, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
it's been kind of ironic for me the way people will, you know, sort of hit me with the infant mortality piece with this yeah. kind of like, aha, you're forgetting about infant mortality. And I'm like, you know, actually, I'm not forgetting about that um, because I lost an infant and I know what that feels like very well. Um, and the really interesting thing, though, is that, uh, you know, non-industrialized cultures, they have higher infant mortality, higher childhood infectious disease. Um, they, you know, there's certain sort of pathologies of traditional societies. And then there are the pathologies of modernity and industrialization because we have higher rates of suicide and mental illness. Um, so you're exchanging um, problems, which are actually in some ways very uh, direct and simple to solve, like childhood infectious disease, although that can change population rates, which can then become a a complex problem to solve. But, um, but we're, we're exchanging the, the pathologies of the traditional world for the pathologies of the modern world. And, you know, our life expectancy is longer largely because you average in childhood mortality. And, um, when you don't have childhood mortality, then your life expectancy seems longer, but we have, you know, very high rates of obesity and diabetes and mental illness and, you know, when these cultures are rapidly industrialized, domestic violence goes up, crime goes up, uh, addictions of all kinds go up. Um, and, and a lot of these pathologies are associated with schooling. The, the school failure and suicide are very closely linked and, you know, just rampant in indigenous societies that have rapidly industrialized and where people have gone and built schools and brought this whole ranking and failure model into these previously very relatively egalitarian social groupings. So, um, so yeah, so we are sort of romantic. We're, we're sort of cherry picking the good things about the modern world and sort of like not looking at the problems that we have. Um, and, you know, in the end, I think to leave this behind, we have to face the very hard truth that this is a racist way of thinking about other people. It's still a reflection of the kind of colonial, ethnocentric, racist way of looking at our fellow human beings. It's like the idea of the developed world and the not undeveloped or developing world is, is our modernized version of um, viewing people as either uh, civilized or savage. It's not fundamentally different. People from, you know, these other cultures are people. They are adults. They are as intelligent as we are. They have good and bad traits, just like we do. They have areas of insight and they have blind spots, just like we do. Um, they are not undeveloped. They are human beings who have developed along very different lines. And, you know, there's no reason just because other people haven't focused on the technological development that we've focused on does not justify our viewing them as children, as, you know, beings that exist at some kind of lower stage of development. They are our equals. And so um, that's not romanticizing people. That's, that's viewing them with respect as your equals, as, as your fellow human beings. Um, so um, it's funny how it's easy. If, if, if we look at within our own culture and you see like one person is like a, an Olympic athlete and another person is a astrophysicist and another person is a 
you brilliant musician, you know, you don't think of one of them as being more developed than another. They're human beings who have developed along different trajectories. They've developed different capacities that are to some degree, you know, latent in all of us. And, you know, they've spent their time differently and they've focused their efforts differently and they've arrived at different places. And I think that that's how we have to look at other cultures. There's, um, there's this really nice film about uh, Red Crow College, an indigenous college in uh, Canada that um, Udi Mandel and Kelly Teamy made. And this man uh, named Narcisse Blood, um, who uh, teaches at that college, he says that, you know, you have to understand that indigenous knowledge is a complete knowledge paradigm that is as large, it's as extensive and complex as you know, the modern knowledge paradigm. It's not just a little bit of, you know, folklore and a little bit of plant lore and, you know, cute stories and cute traditions that we can celebrate on the weekends. It's a complete different knowledge paradigm. It's a different way for human intelligence to operate in the world. And um, I think that we, we do need to look at it that way. And then we'll understand that, yes, of course, we have things to share with each other in both directions. You know, we have things that we can offer. They have things that they can offer. And we should just talk to each other as as equals um, and see what we can learn from each other. And the other thing people will often say is that, you know, they'll say like, well, isn't it inevitable that these societies have to, you know, join the developed world because there's no going back? And um, to that I always answer, you know, that the one thing that is inevitable is that our society is not going to continue as it, it currently is, is operating. The trajectory that we're on is completely unsustainable and it is going to change whether we like it or not. And so um, that's where Wade Davis's idea of the ethnosphere of ethnodiversity as, as being valuable in the same sense as biodiversity is so important because we are going to have to learn to live a satisfying life in a way that is less destructive to the planet that we live on. And these other cultures have a lot of knowledge about how to build a complex social system where everyone is cared for and, and that supports uh, human psychological health by embedding people in a network of social relationships where they, they feel like they're not going to slip between the cracks and they're not having to face things on their own. They have you know, very rich um, traditions of, of ceremony and of living with nature that, that enable them to live a satisfying life without the levels of material consumption and, you know, environmental destruction that, that we base our idea of the good life on. So we're going to need these other models to learn from because we have to change. It's not they who has to change. They don't yeah. have to change. We have to change. <laughs> Yeah, no, that and that came out so clear. All these ideas came out so wonderfully in in the film. I really enjoyed it, and it really hit home. Um, you know, the fact that the the ethnodiversity and the fact that you know we are all equals. There isn't, uh, you know, better than, less than, you know, kind of judgment. That you know, as we Wade said. Um, Nobody, none of these cultures are failed attempts at, at being human, right? We are all um, living in our our cult, our cultural knowledge base, you know, like you were, like you had mentioned there before. And I think the film did such a great job uh, at raising the questions and and the conversations. As you said, we don't know what the answers are, 
you know, but there's certainly lots that we can be talking about. Um, I was hoping you could share a bit about what the filming experience was like. Your daughters came along at the time, yeah? Yeah, well, we just, we went with a very tiny crew. We really had two crew members and my husband and me and our kids um, and one other friend who went along with us. And so, um, so they participated in a variety of ways and they were able to sort of get, you know, photography tips from the camera guys and, um, you know, they would kind of hold the boom and things like that. But, um, one, one funny thing that happened was that, um, Isabel, who was 16 at the time, actually conducted one of the key interviews in the film, um, because we were just sort of all taking a break and Isabel and the two camera guys, um, they, they went up to this school that was near the place where we were staying to kick a soccer ball around on the field. And they discovered there was this kind of ceremony going on that was honoring this woman who had raised money for the school. And um, so she was the German woman who mm -hmm. is interviewed in the film. And um, so they were just kind of there on the spot. They didn't have time to come back and get um, Neil and me and, and so the camera guy just went up and talked to her, introduced himself and said, oh, can we can we interview you about your your involvement with this school? And she said, sure. And then um, and then the camera guy said, Isabel, <laughs> what your mom said, what would your mom ask if she was here? And then he basically said, you do it. You do the interview. <laughs> and so Isabel, you know, who knew exactly what I would ask because she knows everything that I think Um that's one of the burdens of being an unschooled child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, all of your parents' thoughts and feelings. Um, so she actually did the interview. She did a great job. And, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, and they also, the girls also um, uh, sort of formed the relationship with the little girl who's uh, interviewed in the film because she was just sort of hanging around the place um, one of the places where we were staying and, and, you know, they got to know each other and she was very eager to participate in the film. So, so they sort of made that connection as well. And, you know, and so it's just that usual thing. I'm sure you know this. It's like a lot of people think in terms of kids being in the way or being some kind of burden on, you know, uh, the process of adult work. But I think a lot of homeschooled and unschooled kids are, they're very, um, it's just not the case. They're very naturally considerate and respectful and they, they either make themselves useful or they just go off and do something else. And it's, it's just not a problem or in any way a burden to have them around. And so it's just a lot of fun and they get to learn some things and um, it all works well. Yeah, no, that I thought it sounded like it would have been a great time. And I, I love your point that either, you know, they participate or they find something else that's, that's interesting to do, right? It, it really is um, so nice living, living with them, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And she did do a great interview with the, that German woman. That's hilarious. <laughs> she, yeah, she got some good answers there. <laughs> um, looking back now, what for you has been the most valuable outcome from choosing unschooling? Well, you know, I probably you know people say this, but it's like they always say on people on their deathbed don't say they wish they had spent more time at the office. They say they wish they had spent more time with their kids. And so I really feel just the time that you have with each other as a family and the time that you have to be out in nature and to read books together and, you know, think and talk together. And it just, you know, it's just the sort of the most precious part of life. And um, so to me, that's the, 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 the most important thing. And it's not... You know, there was there was a um, a guy who sort of made a good point about 
how we raise or educate our kids. Um, cause he was a proponent of the idea that kids pretty much, you know, turn out to be who they are and, you know, we don't really have that much control over them actually. <laughs> and he told, told that to one woman and she just felt despairing cause she was like, well, but if I, if, if it doesn't make any difference, then why does it matter how I treat my kids? And his answer was, well, of course it matters how you treat it. I mean, you, you don't get to pick how your husband turns out, but it, of course it matters how you treat him. And so, um, I think that, that that sense that it's not about molding your child or, or, you know, doing something that's going to make your child into necessarily a different kind of person, but it's just about, you know, treating each other with respect and, and, uh, and, and living together in a way that feels, you know, mutually respectful. Um, you know, it's a work in progress for most of us, obviously it's like unschooling isn't a panacea and it doesn't solve every problem in life. Um, the way I kind of look at it is that, um, I think our society is way off course in a lot of ways. We're, you know, of course, we're completely unsustainable. I think the way we're living right now is too socially isolating and fragmented and our communities have really kind of broken down and disintegrated. And, you know, the levels of like mental illness and depression and anxiety are really epidemic. And, you know, unschooling doesn't solve all these problems. I, I see it as a transitional stage in um, sort of gradually developing or sort of rebuilding better ways to live on the earth. Um, just sort of a kind of a step in the right direction. Um, there's this uh, Lakota man who does a traditional horsemanship program with at-risk youth. And, and his what he was saying is that, you know, it's for the Lakota people who are maybe less far, of course, than we are, but... Uh, um, he said, it's taken us seven generations to get this far off course. And we have to expect it may take seven generations to sort of get back. And so I kind of look at it that way and, and explain it that way to my kids and, and hope that they will understand whatever failures or, you know, um, you know, things, things that didn't work well in their childhood, um, as this kind of transitional process from this very, authoritarian. I mean, you know, look, our parents were born, my parents, I don't know how old you are. My parents were born into a world that was racist, sexist, authoritarian, colonial, you know, um, with a lot of very negative values. And we've tried to change a lot of those values in our lifetime, but it's a work in progress. And, you know, my parents tried to raise my brother and me in ways that were sort of more respectful and less violent than the ways they were raised. And, and my husband and I have tried to move that process along um, by questioning the institutional setting for learning and trying to give our kids the respect to learn, you know, what they want to learn when they want to learn it. But, um, you know, that's just sort of the next step. And then this next generation will be able to see ahead. It's almost like we can't see what, what lies ahead, but they'll see what the next step is. And then they'll take that. And, you know, maybe it's going to be, I think, there's a good chance what we need to do is rebuild our communities to be, you know, sort of both more sustainable and more healthy and hospitable for children and families and um, just sort of rebuild ways of living together as communities that are really more workable for both people and um, for other species on the planet. So I look mm-hmm. forward to seeing what yeah. <laughs> generation is going to come up with. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we didn't get here overnight. You know, it's going to it's going to 
take uh, the, the same kind of time to uh, find a different way of being, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and your point about that, that, that's interesting that your most uh, valuable outcome being the time that you get to spend with your children, because yeah, as you mentioned, it's not about mold, even with unschooling, it's not about molding them um, to, like we were talking about earlier, some sort of unschooling ideal. It's really being able to uh, spend that time with our children, letting them be, discover themselves and, and helping them gain that, that level of self-awareness that, that is so different, right? Yeah, no, that's awesome. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Carol. It's been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been fun. No, it's awesome. Um, before we go, uh, where's the best place for people to connect with you online? Um, I have a website at carolblack.org, um, and I'm on Twitter at cblack, um, and, uh, Facebook at, you know, I don't know how many, there must be a lot of blacks <laughs> on Facebook, but I'm one of the Carol Blacks on Facebook. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm in all those places. And there's also the Schooling the World website at schoolingtheworld.org, which has uh, a lot of information about the film. Right now we do have the film up uh, to watch for free on my website at carolblack.org. You can see Schooling the World for free um, online there if you like. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I will be sure to share that link as well. Thanks very much, Carol. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Thank you. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the growing podcast archive. The conversations never go out of date. You can find more information about my books, the Living Joyfully Network online community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit online course at my website, livingjoyfully.ca.